Hey everyone, welcome to season two of Reversing Climate Change. We are doing that podcast thing now and launching a Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts. There are various tiers with different types of goodies available. Do you want to receive a special newsletter digest of what Nori Knots are reading that week? Be a part of a Nori book club? Get special access to Nori events? Go take a look at patreon.com slash Nori Podcast for what we're offering. And in that spirit of being lean in that startup kind of way that, you know, we like to do, this list of goodies is subject to change, and we'd very much like your feedback. Is there something that you'd really like to see, but it isn't listed here? Honest feedback does a lot to help us shape what we offer to you. You can send an email to podcast.nori.com or fill out our podcast survey anonymously in our newsletter, which you can find at nori.com slash subscribe. And thank you so much for listening to another season of Reversing Climate Change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. Today I have with me Charles C. Mann, journalist and author of 1491, 1493, and The Wizard and the Prophet. He's also a correspondent for The Atlantic, Wired, and Science. Thanks for being here, Charles. It's my pleasure. Uh, Your work comes up all the time, and we recently did a Nori Patreon book club for The Wizard and the Prophet for the month of April generated a lot of uh, discussion and debate. I think this is a great book and a great way to frame, I don't know, various schools of thought within the environmental movement. Why don't you give us a nice little baseline here for what exactly are these camps? Who are the avatars of each that you feature in the book? And and how are you conceptualizing uh, the split? Basically, I'm a journalist, as you said, and I've been um, reporting on environmental issues since the uh, 1980s, since the late 1980s, and uh, talking to activists, politicians, and above all, researchers. And over time, I came to realize that the answers that I was getting to my questions fell into two broad camps, not always, but generally. And I thought of them as uh, wizards and prophets. And uh, Wizards essentially are the people who want, you know, what's disparagingly called the techno fix. Their argument is, look, we have these technical challenges from, you know, the things that we that we want to do and the growth of our economies. And so what we need to do is switch on the science and technology machine and essentially produce our way out of our dilemmas. The profits, on the other hand, say that's completely wrong. That's exactly the wrong direction. It's doing more of what's gotten us into trouble in the past. And what we need to do is to conserve and radically cut back and reduce the the human footprint. And a while ago, it suddenly dawned on me that these two approaches were kind of the opposite from each other and that many of the conflicts I saw both within the environmental movement and uh, between the environmental movement and society were expressions of the conflict between wizards and prophets. And I thought, geez, I'd really like to read something about that. And then I didn't. And so I decided that, well, okay, I'll try and do it since nobody else is. And I think you do a very good job of being fair to both of these camps because they each have a part of the puzzle. And depending on the issue or the various application within side of environmental concerns, you might find yourself leaning to one way or the other, and I think you do a very good job of steel manning for the listener, opposite of straw manning. So I think you you treat both of these schools of thought uh, maybe even more fairly than you had to in order to write this book. Well, um, thank you very much. No, I think it's important. And the reason is that relatively soon in my research, it suddenly dawned on me that these differences were not just kind of pragmatic differences about, you know, how do you do this, but they expressed values. And um, they're values that everybody shares in one proportion or another, and we just give different weights to them. So typically, profits value community and the idea that we're all part of nature and that uh, we are embedded in this much, much larger system in which we should play our assigned role. And uh, the wizards, on the contrary, are much more about individual liberty and freedom, which is, you know, the idea of maximizing human potential and uh, people living in the best possible way that they can. And we all like both of these things in different amounts. It's just that they come into conflict. And where you end up on which side of that conflict determines a lot about whether you're appealed to by the wizards or the prophets. And then the book, uh, you use a very interesting framing device. This is, I saw your book described as a joint biography or, or some such. And so you have these two avatars of these two ways of, of being and thinking. Uh, who are they and what, what are broadly their, their life arcs? 
Well, as I said, I've been a journalist for a long time. And uh, over the years, I realized I've often heard this name, Norman Borlaug. And people who I later came to think of as wizards would say, I want to do for X what Borlaug did for wheat. And who Norman Borlaug was, he's the main figure in what's called the Green Revolution, which is the mix of high-yielding hybrid seeds, high-intensity fertilizer, and um, high-volume irrigation that uh, created what's been called the Green Revolution, which doubled, tripled, or even quadrupled global grain yields in the um, 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And it had a huge impact on our lives. And you know, one way of putting it is that as far back as you know, historians can go, the majority of humankind has faced hunger at some point or other in the in the year. You know, when I graduated from high school, you know, the UN was Food and Agricultural Organization estimated that between 40 and 60 percent of the world's population was malnourished. Now those same people are estimating that it's on the order of eight to 10 percent. So you see this enormous and dramatic decline that the Green Revolution had a lot to do with. And so people saw that and they took a very powerful lesson from it, which is that you, you know, switch on the science machine and you can have this dramatic impact on life. And they hope that they can do the same in whatever field that they're in. So that's the reason for looking at Borlaug as this sort of prototypical wizard. At about the same time, I realized that when I talked to especially older environmentalists, I heard this name I would hear this name occasionally that I had certainly never heard in sort of public discourse, and that was a guy named William Vogt. And essentially, he put together the ideas behind the modern environmental movement. He wrote the first modern we're all going to hell book, if you know what I mean. And that was back in 1948. It was called The Road to Survival. And if you read people like Jared Diamond or people... Paul Ehrlich or um, to, you know Bill McKibben to some extent Naomi Klein, all these kinds of people, their ideas directly trace back to Bill and William Vogt. And then I was fascinated to realize that they both got their ideas, which diametrically opposed to each, each other, at the same time from in the same place, which is uh, rural central Mexico in the mid-1940s. Yeah, I bet the journalist and you love that you uh, found that nice little connection there. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I thought, wait a minute, there, there's a way you could actually tell this story. As the two people got their ideas at the same place in time, Matt had this immediate collision and never never spoke to each other again. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I do do like that nice intersection there. I'm trying to think, you just gave a great list of various other people who, who may qualify as prophets that are currently operating. Who might be some of the great wizards? I guess the first person that comes to mind is also an alumnus of this podcast, which is Ted Nordhaus of the Breakthrough Institute. Do you think that's fair? And then who might who might be in his company? Sure. I mean, there's lots of those kinds of people. And uh, they, you know, Hans Rosling, the guy who wrote Factfulness, would probably be another. Jesse Osabel. Lots of people with the resources for the future. And these, uh, you know, one of your guests, uh, Mez, Ramez Nam, uh, a good friend of mine would certainly count as one. He's told me himself. I mean, you can you can find them all over. They're the people who are, you know, boosting the idea of huge solar installations, all those uh, huge wind installations, the people who want to do next generation nukes, the people who are arguing. I think Emma Maris recently uh, argued in Wired that uh, GMOs are necessary to um, save nature. So that kind of approach is, is, a, is a wizard's approach. And by the way, just by naming them, I'm not trying to sort of single them out or criticizing them. I'm just saying they're exemplars of a kind of tendency that's been around in the environmental movement since the very beginning. Norman Borlaug, the guy described as an agricultural scientist, also saw himself as an environmentalist because he believed that ha- intensifying production and having this you know, much more, quote unquote, scientific method of agriculture would lead to increased yields and fewer demands on nature. So you wouldn't have hungry people going out into um, the forests and meadows and just sort of stripping them bare. Yeah, absolutely. And it's my intention not to name and shame these people either, because I think it's very useful in learning to split uh, ideas into their various camps. Like I like that there's a wizard in a profit group and that helps me really wrap my head around this in a clear way. And if, if one of them clearly was right about 100% 
of everything, there would no longer be a dichotomy and this partition between them. One of them would have just concretely won once and for all. And I think that means that each of them have something to say here. But that being said, when you do create a nice partition and there's two options or two broad schools of thought within an, an issue group, that's just sort of begging out to be disrupted and to be uh, uh, complicated. So what are some of the yeah. complexities that, that might face such a, a divide like this? Well, first, I should say that uh, what I'm talking about is a kind of mental model, you know, for how to sort things. And uh, there's a famous expression that all models are wrong, but some are useful. So the first thing to stipulate is that there's tons of exceptions and caveats and, and so forth in this model. And the question is, is it a useful way to break things down? And I, I think it is. And uh, one of the things that would I think that it would be complexity is that, say, take Ted Nordhaus at the Breakthrough Institute. I think Ted would be appalled if any of this were to be taken as somehow that his belief in technological solutions were taken to be a lack of love of nature and a lack of respect for the natural world. And similarly, I think that profits who are, say, in favor of organic farming and uh, this kind of thing, embedding themselves in the community, are very upset at being taken for anti-science. You know, there's a guy just down the road. I live in a small town in Massachusetts, and just down the road from me is a small organic farm. And they regard themselves as highly scientific because they see themselves as embedded into, you know, the ecosystems around them, and they have gone to considerable trouble to understand how these work. So one way to put it would be that they both express different parts of a love of nature and different parts of a love of science. Okay, I think that's that's useful. One of the various other axes that seems like it might map on to wizards and profits is to what degree do you believe in economies of scale versus decentralization? Yes, well, they're, they're, that, that's exactly. The wizards typically, not always, look to centralize solutions and economies of scale. The profits regard those as brittle and tend to look for decentralized networks. And there's a whole division about whether they are democratic or not. Okay. Yeah, because I could definitely think of counterexamples too, especially with something like the potential of blockchain to be radically decentralizing in an important kind of way. So a lot of the people who are extremely wizardly about blockchains also are some of the most strong advocates I know of against centralized institutions. So that doesn't to sure. say this doesn't break the model, just maybe... Well, they yeah. No, but you, for example, take solar power. I mean, there's sort of two models of solar power, and one is gigantic installations. You know, the, the, and you hear this sort of calculation, you cover X amount of the Arizona desert in solar panels, and that would be enough to power the entire country. And uh, the idea is that, you know, on some level, you should actually do that. We should have these huge places in the desert, and then they would um, leave the rest for, um, and then pipe it around the country and, you know, leave the rest for, for nature. And the uh, profits tend to viscerally react against that because they see this as creating a kind of a sacrifice zone. And what they like, the idea is of these immense networks of um, neighborhood solar, you know, with lots and lots of rooftop and small scale installations all networked together, passing power back and forth. And they see that as under much more local control, much more de decentralized, much more resilient in case of disaster. And so you get, you know, an identical technology, the, the PV panel, thought of in two remarkably different ways. <laughs> Do you think, okay, so another axis I'd like to uh, plop on top of this and see if it maps at all. Do you see it fitting along partisan uh, lines uh, or, or even just uh, political philosophy lines, or is it more complicated than that? Well, it's a little bit. You know, it is certainly the case that, uh, you know, at various times, for instance, there is, uh, as we speak, there is a relatively recently a Michael Moore produced documentary that was uh, Planet of the Humans. Well, I saw that, this. It was, that, uh, everyone's been yelling about it. So let's, let's yeah, dig in. Yeah, well, in my opinion, it's not particularly good. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that it does is it calls various environmentalists who have embraced larger scale solutions, which are typically wizards, it calls them corporate sellouts. And the implication is, you know, they're sort of playing into the hands of the right and the capitalists and, and this kind of thing. So there's a kind of gloss, a political gloss you can put on it. But I think at its bottom, it isn't really like that uh, so, so much because there are plenty of 
people on both sides who like the different values. And so typically wizards are the ones who argue that technology will let everybody packing together into these super dense cities where knowledge and uh, can be centralized and, and accumulated and passed on better, leaving the rest of the world for nature. And then the prophets are typically are like small town type people, you know, who like the idea of these smaller scale communities and regard um, these kind of mega cities that are embraced by people like Ted at the Breakthrough Institute as, you know, kind of cesspools of uh, corruption and inequality. And you'll find people, you know, on the right and left on both sides of that debate. Absolutely, you can. And when I think about this, too, especially within the profit camp, I can think of many conservatives I know, thinkers I like, who prefer much smaller institutions that are much more local. And I also know a lot of people who are more in the permaculture, small farms movement that very well might end up neighbors and agreed on that one thing, even though their lives may look very different. Yes. Yeah. And so one of the, I mean, it's not really something I, I thought of when I first thought of one of the things I was pleased to see is that it occurred to me that if I looked at things from this viewpoint, I might get a little past a kind of a partisan divide right now that uh, has devolved into often a kind of scorp making that isn't really particularly useful. Yeah, I suppose when you say something like that, it reminds me of, I think I got this from Nathaniel Johnson at Grist, but that fights over nuclear power are more symbolic of just a values divide more than actually the science of whether or not nuclear is good or not. Is that what you're kind of hinting at? Yes. And uh, the thing that I would slightly amend what you said is that Often they're just about values and what you prefer, and that's said, said rather than about science, and that's said to dismiss the values. But I, I actually think the values are really, really important, and uh, that the discussion would be much more useful if it was actually about the values rather than the sort of pretend argument about the science. Yeah, so there's like a, a proxy war that's way downstream that we're fighting, but you want to go back and be like, what kind of world do you actually want to create? You think we should be talking on that level? Yeah. I mean, the reason that people, you know, that I know of at least don't like nuclear power at bottom is not because of this or that radiation count or this or that, uh, you know, environmental footprint. It's because they see this as this giant facility that's tinkering with things that people just should have a lot more humility about. Got it. Yeah. I think that's a, a very fair point. And that's not a bad I, that's not a bad argument to me. I mean, you know, the the idea that uh, you know we need to think about our or- place in the order of creation and respect it—that's not a terrible argument. But people are afraid to make these kind of spiritual or religious or moral or whatever ethical, whatever word you want to use, type of ar- arguments, and so instead they drag in these proxies, as you as you pointed out, where they say, "Oh, it's unsafe" or something. When at bottom, even if somehow it was proven to be safe, they just don't want to go down that path. And very similar logic applies to GMOs. Oh, Charles, I I remember that I wanted to do this and I'm I'm glad I I recalled it. But I think I found basically the the perfect summation of the profit uh, way of thinking uh, at its most extreme. And also it fits very neatly in here. And I don't know if you know this, but have you read The Call of Cthulhu by H.P. Lovecraft? (laughs) Well, that sentence did not end it up like I expected it uh-uh, to. It <laughs> yes, I read it, but a long time ago. All right. Check this out. I love this paragraph. It's beautiful and uh, a bit terrifying. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but someday the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. What do you think of that? <laughs> That's pretty close. That's pretty close. Vintage H.P. Lovecraft, super overwritten, um, but onto something. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, th- th- absolutely. There, there's uh, an ornateness there that is uh, out of fashion, you could say, these days, among many other things yeah. that he thought. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, when I read that when I was 17 or 18, and it certainly, in general, left an impression, but obviously I didn't remember that uh, paragraph. Terrific. Thanks for sharing it. <laughs> yeah, no problem. 
sorry to just uh, basically add a non-diegetic insert there just for my own edification. <laughs> well, okay. I guess one thing I wanted us to get to is when I think about schools of thought or uh, paradigms, I like to think of them kaleidoscopically. Like I like being able to mm-hmm. flip, I like being able to flip through them and say, okay, if I think about a problem this way, it illuminates this thing, but it also has its own blind spot in this way. Right. And uh, I think one of the signs of intelligence that I look for, which because I value this, I'm sort of placing myself. <laughs> it's like that aside, I think that the more of those that you can hold, oftentimes the, the better off you are in being able to understand problems. So if we're able mm-hmm. to treat the wizard and the prophet paradigms like kaleidoscopically, treat them kaleidoscopically, what do you think they are showing us and what do you think they are obscuring? Interesting. So you're saying that, you know, a point of view is, I guess I would think of it this way, is is like a spotlight. It casts intense light, but also uh, dark shadows. Yes, exactly. And in this particular case, I would say that one of the things that wizards often do is make a kind of pragmatic case that this is the way to go because these features of the prophet's worldview are counterproductive or don't make any sense or will make things worse. So you see all the times sort of calculations like if all farming were organic, we would produce much less and much more land and it would be an environmental disaster. I'm sure you've read things like that. Mm-hmm. And I want to say to them that what's missing here um, and missing for many of these things is that um, the current type of farming we have is a social arrangement. It's been carefully put together in some places and haphazardly in others, but it depends on an entire body of institutions and laws and practices and so forth that have largely been created since the 1940s and 1950s. There's nothing inevitable about that. So one of the exercises I did is I went to Northwest Illinois and I met this guy who is kind of a model profit farmer and his neighbor is a kind of a model uh, wizard farmer. And I got them to write down all the subsidies of various types that they were eligible for. And essentially, the wizard farmer, you know, produced an entire page of different programs that were devoted to helping his kind of farm go. And the profit type uh, farmer had nothing. There, he, he didn't exist as far as the state, local, and federal governments existed. And the Wizard Farmer cheerfully confessed that without all these, you know, federal and state and local initiatives that he was embedded in, his farm would collapse. So it's very, very difficult to make that kind of comparison because they exist in such different worlds. And often the wizards kind of forget about the sort of social, legal, historical, cultural, et cetera, aspects of this. The prophets, meanwhile, are often you know, quite strong, the sort of potential risks of these things, they're much less good, in my view, at understanding the kind of nitty-gritty social changes that would be required to achieve their their vision. Again, to talk about the same, the fundamental difference, as far as I could see, between the organic farm and the uh, the farm that was next to it, the which was, you know, it was all GMOs, which, you know, with, uh, with uh, corn and soy, was not what they're growing, not, uh, but the different labor amounts that were in it. The smaller scale, much more complicated farm needed many, many more workers. There, the one was 1,200 acres and it had two workers and $2 million worth of equipment. And the other one had a thousand different crops and was recreating natural ecosystems. It was an amazing place, but it had 30 different workers. And so the need to pay those workers meant that his prices were very high, that he couldn't charge cheap for this. And the reason for that is that there's a zillion subsidies for um, agricultural equipment, but there's zero subsidies for farm labor. And, you know, the fundamental difference between them was social. And I, t- I typically think that people who are very embracing of these uh, don't see how contingent their successes would be on these social, historical, and cultural arrangements. That's an interesting angle. I hadn't thought about it in that way. Yeah, when I guess when I do think about prophets, their sort of uh, aesthetic ideal strikes me very much like the Shire, and they would like to recreate that. Yeah. And the the thing is that the Shire presumably had a whole bunch of institutions that, <laughs> I don't know what Tolkien was thinking of, presumably they're similar to the ones that existed in the English countryside in the 1920s. But there's, a, there's hundreds of years of history that underlay the fact that the English countryside worked in the 1920s. So I think it's very 
easy for both sides to dismiss the others as you know not being likely to exist for pragmatic reasons when the real reasons are have to do with institutions. There's no particular reason that we couldn't, if we wanted to, subsidize farm labor. For example, um, we <laughs> subsidize labor all the time. For example, recently Amazon, you know, last year, I think it was, wanted to create its secondary headquarters and states and cities competed for it. And they offered Amazon millions of dollars. And what they were essentially doing was subsidizing the labor of Amazon workers. So New York offered you know, several billion dollars um, and in return would get 50,000 jobs. That's subsidizing labor. And uh, you know, we do that all the time for labor that we consider to be valuable. It's just the reason that we don't do it for agricultural labor is we don't consider it to be valuable. But that doesn't mean that it couldn't be done. And if you subsidize the hiring of labor, the prices from these kind of small-scale farms would drop dramatically and much poorer people could afford the, the produce from them. That's a fascinating point. What do you call this when there's just a tendency of the human mind to view whatever is around us that we're acculturated into to be natural, quote unquote? Um, what, what is the name for, for this way of seeing that is clearly blinding us to how constructed our reality actually is? Yeah, I, I don't know what it is. I guess there's a possibly is related to what the historians call presentism. Mm. Which is judging by the past by the standards of the of, of the present and something you should you should avoid. But it is there is this idea that these things that are around us are quote unquote natural, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but in fact they've often been constructed. That doesn't mean they're bad, but it does mean that they can be changed <laughs> if we want to. So no, I'm not advocating that we should subsidize farm labor. That that's not the point of the argument. The point of the argument is that people who are saying that this or that is inherently less unproductive or inherently less affordable are missing the point that there's reasons underneath what they do that have nothing to do with some imagined agricultural uh, productivity. Oh, sure. I've seen arguments like that all over the place. Perhaps most famously against Norman Borlaug is Vandana Shiva's work saying like, like if you take into all the ecological costs and the subsidies, is this actually uh, feeding the world? Is this actually cheaper? Answer, probably not. Yeah. And I would take her calculations, like all these calculations, with a grain of salt because it's very difficult to imagine, you know, what the actual cost would be in some completely different social arrangement. Oh, sure. I think that's that's perfectly fair. I'm not sure. I don't have the the chops necessary to evaluate these comp competing highly technical claims either. <laughs> so I read these things and go, hmm, seems plausible. I, I just think that you should be skeptical of them. You know, what, you know, to take now to take the sort of Vandana Shiva argument about in, industrial agriculture, what she's essentially saying is that there's environmental costs and the environmental costs are so high that they wipe out all the gains. And you could say, well, there's an entire literature of economics about how to do those kinds of external costs. They're called externalities. You know, the first textbook on externalities is written back in 1918. And so there is a whole lot of um, things that you could do that would dramatically reduce it. For instance, there's all kinds of reasons right now that farmers way overuse fertilizer. And because it's cheap and it's cheap because it's been it's subsidized in all kinds of, of, of different ways. If it was less cheap possibly people might look at using it more sparingly or using it in ways that are less likely to cause washout into rivers and streams, or it might be formulated different, or, you know, and you can list a whole variety of things. There's nothing inherent about the way that we do fertilizer right now, which is one of the main costs, right? Because it goes, the fertilizer goes into the streams and goes into the rivers and ends up in the ocean, causes, you know, fertilizer in the ocean is still uh, fertilizer, causes these immense blooms of algae and other aquatic plants. They drop down to, they die, they drop down to the bottom, bacteria eat them, the bacteria multiply in such a frenzy, they suck all the oxygen and you get these dead spots. Uh, there's a one in the Gulf of Mexico that's about the size of New Jersey. There's one in the Bay of Bengal that's three times bigger than that. And that's a huge environmental cost. So Vandana Shiva is totally right about uh, drawing our attention to that because when we you know, eat our, our Wonder Bread or whatever, we're not thinking about the fact that producing that Wonder Bread led to this gigantic dead spot in the uh, Gulf of Mexico. She's dead right about that. But there's nothing inherent about using fertilizer that automatically gets you there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, this is great nuance and, and thank you for bringing it here. 
Charles, I, I'm going to reveal my bias here, and then maybe you can tell me what I'm missing, which is that Nori as a whole, I, like the, the company is premised around the idea that technology can help us solve environmental crises, uh, notably climate, and help us mm-hmm. wrap our heads around that and help us get to a healthy level of PPM, get that carbon down to a safe, stable level that we can build expectations around based upon what human life has come to expect and depend upon. Mm-hmm. Then I was watching Planet of the Humans too, because I had to, because everyone was yelling and saying not to watch this movie. So of course I had to watch it immediately. And because that's just the way that the brain works. And there's a line in there that always bothers me, which is paraphrasing here, that the same way of thinking that got us into this problem cannot get us out of it. And it was applied to industrial technology, but it was posed in this rhetorical fashion that was, can we use the same technology that got us into this uh, problem to get us out? And me at home, just yes, yes, we absolutely have to, because we can't just walk away from this. Like there's already a certain amount of warming that's locked in. We have to start pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. We can't just retreat and then go to Hobbiton and uh, do our, uh, you know, like live our little permaculture lives. a great thing to do but we also need like large-scale technology to make that sort of profits lifestyle even possible at this point what am i missing so first i'm not going to argue with you what's wrong about the argument that you know the same technology it's not the same technology you know the kind of things that you're talking about uh, carbon eating and photovoltaic panels and uh, windmills and you know power lines that don't uh, waste 50% of their power and resistance and all that, that's not the technology that got us into the problem. (laughs) The technology that got us into the problem is uh, coal-fired power plants, and uh, we're dramatically reducing their number. So to me, it's like you're saying, like, uh, you're allergic to apples, so therefore you shouldn't be eating oranges. You know, it's, it's a nonsensical statement. So that part, I'm not going to disagree with you. What I would argue is both sides involve that this living in Hobbiton, in a, in a modern sense, involves all kinds of technology, and it's just different kinds of technology. Uh, right now, you know, if you put solar panels on all the roofs and, in, and you know, little ones in the backyards, and you made them much more efficient, and you developed uh, methods of localized storage, you know, which are the sort of idea that Elon Musk talks about when you say that you would store in his batteries. I just don't think we know how much that could do. You know, right now, um, the most efficient solar panels are on the order of, I think, about 48% is the incident radiation coming in right now. They're very, very expensive because we don't choose to subsidize them. You know, there are lots and lots of things in our society that we choose to subsidize. If we wanted to, we could choose to subsidize that. We could kick up a lot more on the research into how to switch power back and forth. We could kick up, we could subsidize uh, this. And you know, we could get a lot of the way towards Hobbiton. If we wanted to, it would be difficult, but all paths are going to be difficult. Doing the other kind of path, you know, where we construct large scale um, centralized installations and somehow send the power all around, like, you know, the square mile in the in the Sonoran Desert, that's also extremely difficult. So I, I just feel that we just don't know. And one of the things that I, if you don't mind me, I'm going to get this a little bit of a tangent. Is it okay if I go on it? Please do. Okay. I feel that the role of ignorance is insufficiently appreciated. There are lots of things we simply don't know whether we can do. And that means we don't know that they're not possible or they don't know if there is possible. And all we can really say is that we could actually go quite a bit of the ways towards Hobbiton if we wanted to do that. Or we could go quite a bit in the opposite direction if we wanted to do that. And we don't really know because we can't predict the future, what the fundamental consequences would be. And so I tend to get upset or annoyed when I hear people saying with great confidence, this or that is not possible. Because I think the answer is we just simply don't know. And it all comes back to that gigantic Lovecraft quote that I forced into this episode. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Yeah, I think think humility is is underappreciated all over the place. And we try to do that. Like basically the number of things that I hold with any degree of certainty uh, shrinks as I get older. Are you that way too? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that this also tells me though, is that because we don't appreciate under understand, you know, we're very lousy at predicting the future. We should maybe both sides should be a little bit less dogmatic and we should investigate what you can do with very, very small scale nukes, for example. I don't think we know the consequences well enough to, for any either side to similarly, we should look at 
what GMOs can do. We should also try to see, well, how much can we get with neighborhood solar? You know, why not, why not really kick it up and run some serious demonstrations of the best, te- the best neighborhood solar technology we can and see what we get? I think that's a fine way to go. I think we need all the experiments and all the best we can. So, right. You know, uh, and it wouldn't be so hard with neighborhoods. You know, my wife is an architect and designer, and she's very interested in sustainability. And so she's you know, been building these small scale, you know, near, near net zero energy homes. There should be some way for her to, to you know, programs she could apply to, to convert them into totally neighborhood locally um, powered rents and see how that worked. Seems fine to me. I, I would you know to, to build a little version of Hobbiton and look at it. <laughs> yeah, Charles. One of the the applications of your ideas that we played with in the the Nori Patreon book club is to what degree does this apply on to how one lives one's personal life? And I ended up seizing upon a passage I really like. It's the most famous passage from Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments. It's called The Poor mm-hmm. Man's Son. Are you familiar with that? I read the book in college, so so the answer is I should be more familiar with it than I actually am. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it might be worth revisiting this section. It's definitely the most famous, and it's beautiful. It starts with, The poor man's son, whom heaven in its anger has visited with ambition, which I think is such a powerful opening. But Adam yeah. Smith sees ambition and this desire to get rich as a form of a curse. Granted, the person in the process of trying to get rich develops many instruments and uh, technological advances that makes our lives better. But this sort of burden of ambition doesn't necessarily produce the most livable or uh, a life, one could say. For instance... I don't personally want to be Elon Musk. I don't want to live. I was that just life. thinking the same name. It's funny. Oh yeah, <laughs> a grand, well, you know, yeah. I'm glad he's a father now, and, and uh, that, that's great. Him and Grimes have better. But he's also got like six other kids. Jeez, Louise. Oh, and that too. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I guess that one just caught my imagination. But yeah, that life seems uh, is so demand. Like basically, I'm relatively profitesque. I don't expect to be remembered very long, especially not by people very far removed from my own family. I'm relatively okay with that. I think the most important thing most people will do is raise children that are halfway decent, compassionate, kind people. I think that's great. And I have the same ambitions myself. Anything I get above that is just sort of happenstance. But I am so glad that there are Elon Musk out there because it's a form of human sacrifice ambition is this sort of like wizardly developing new things uh, that we need that. But I think they lay themselves at the altar for the benefit of humanity by their own curse of this ambition. Does that halfway make sense to you? Yeah. You know, and I should, I guess, in fitting with our theme, point out that on the opposite side, you know, Bill McKibben has sort of wrecked his life to uh, lead 350.org. You know, I know him very slightly, and I can tell you he does not enjoy being a public and political figure. You know, it's not fun for him. He's doing it because he he, he believes it. By the way, that documentary that we were talking about, that was uh, something that really annoyed me about it. The idea that uh, Bill is a corporate sellout. I've disagreed with him plenty. Sometimes he's been so mad at me we haven't spoken. But, geez, the idea that he's not a figure of huge integrity is completely ridiculous. You know, he's kind of sacrificed his life in in exactly the same way to try to create a political movement for fighting climate change. And I think that's an, you know, again, with a theme of social and political arrangements, that's absolutely necessary. No politician's going to stick their neck out to do it unless there's a lot of constituents who are behind it. And they have to show it. And organizations like 350.org are for that. That's great. That's a great additional example, too, from a totally different angle. So, yeah, I don't I don't know that I would want to tra- change uh, places with uh, any of those people. It sounds very stressful. Everyone scrutinizes everything you do and calls you a bad person. It doesn't sound yeah. fun. You know, people call McKibben, you know, or, you know, if his ideas were food, we would all die and this sort of thing. Right. It can't be pleasant. No, no. Well, I guess one thing that's comforting in, in the darkest of, of ways is your relationship with Lynn Margulis. That's one thing that we haven't even gotten here. But what is, what, by the way, what was that like? And then also, does this wizard and profit dynamic even make sense in the face of her insights, which... What even were they? No. <laughs> no. So that was part of the reason I included her, because she's like a critic of the entire thing. I wanted to incorporate the idea that there's perspectives from which everything I'm talking about just is stupid and, and doesn't <laughs> isn't even worth considering. So her point of view is Lynn Margulis is this famous biologist, right? Famous especially for her 
contributions to understanding the micro world of bacteria and viruses and protists and all these other um, different tiny creatures. And um, from her point of view, which is pretty justifiable, they're what's important about life on Earth. They're 99% of the biomass, 99% of the, you know, sort of evolutionary creativity in terms of, you know, the genetic variability. They're just amazing. And so people are like this epiphenomena. And uh, the point of view is they're just a species like any other. They're like protozoa, not fundamentally different. And she argued that this was Darwin's key insight. You know, Darwin talked about evolution, but before you could talk about evolution, you had to have the idea that there was a single set of laws that applied to everything, no exceptions. You know, it's not like dogs have special rules that apply only to them. Evolution applies to everything, including us. We're just part of nature, just another species among all the others. And one of the other rules is that uh, species that are inordinately successful don't live very long because they either wipe themselves out or they drown in their own wastes, they exhaust their own resources, or all three. So she saw that as happening to humans, and the idea both wizards and prophets are arguing about ways to save us. If you don't think that you can be saved because of the laws of nature saying no, then it's sort of stupid to, to have an argument between them. Uh, on the one hand, I like that she just out-pessimists the prophets in the, in the most serious of ways, but also I find it kind of comforting to feel like it takes the, the pressure off the human race a little bit. You're like, whenever you zoom out and think deep time, it really calms me. She regarded me as a sort of a sentimental sap, um, you know, reading books about polar bears and the like, <laughs> right? <laughs> and she thought that, you know, we were completely deluded if we thought that we were special you know, she liked to say this. I mean, I didn't know her well, but she would always, she knew me well enough to prick my bubble whenever she could. And she'd say, oh, you think we're special, somehow a different species from everybody else. How nice it must be to be you, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, if you look at it her way, um, you can say, well, we're conducting this gigantic experiment now to find out if we're just a species like everything else or if we are actually capable of changing in ways that no other species can. She would say, as a betting person, the odds. She would say the odds are very definitely they were not special. No, and this is a favorite theme of the show too. We get into the Fermi paradox and uh, whether or not this is a great filter event and whether human beings will supersede this sort of challenge. I hope so. The reason I do what I do is I hope we're able to do it. But there is a chance that Lynn is correct, and we're just following the pace set by every other creature that has been so successful that it's killed things off. Right. Mm. And uh, I think, though, that if she were around and uh, we were talking now, that even she would say that if we were successful, that really would mean we were special. That would be an astounding thing. It totally would be. It would be really cool, right? <laughs> you know, if success is not given, then to actually be successful would be just awesome. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Well, Charles, we didn't even get to talk to your other books in 1491 and 1493, which I have read in the last year. I read both of them. Uh, made a really big impression, too. Um, I like this focus on, well, one thing that's come up quite a lot inside of Nori and also in the book club is this idea that Native Americans are this sort of noble savage, this romantic idea of them as interacting with this primeval force and not changing it. And now, of course, we know, and your work has documented, the degree to which humans have and indigenous people in, in particular have shaped these environments. So I think that's a really cool insight, but I'm wondering like bigger than that, is there some connection between your work on indigenous peoples and the Colombian exchange and also wizards and prophets? Like what, what is the connection? Well, I thought of these two books mentally. I mean, I should first say I'm kind of embarrassed to talk about this and uh, I was hoping you wouldn't bring it up because uh, you the I'd forget, huh? you is going to, uh, sound really pretentious. And the reason it's going to sound pretentious is that it actually is pretentious. Oh, no. Um, I got to know what this is. So I apologize in advance. I thought of these books as a trilogy, already bad. Um, <laughs> Wait, well, why is the, that bad? That is not necessarily bad. Oh, yeah, right. Um, just everybody wants to read a trilogy. Um, <laughs> uh, in the, in the, the first one, in their past, present, and future, you know, sort of the past represented by 1491 about the world that was created, the present being the 1493, which is this, you know, ricocheting of environmental consequences around the world. And then the future, which is, you know, how we're going to get 
out of the situation that we're in, um, which is what's discussed in uh, The Wizard and the, and, and the Prophet. But unlike normal trilogies, they don't say one, two, and three, and you can read them all in any order. That's cool. Uh, so, okay. I guess that makes sense to me because you're, you're saying that the world that we live in from 1493 and the Columbian Exchange, when you have various organisms crossing giant barriers that had never previously been superseded in a, in a large way, yeah. that's still the world we're living in right now. Right, right. And it's a world of globalization. So one of the funny things is that, you know, there's these various protests against globalization. I'm, so, I'm sort of thinking, man, <laughs> you're locking the door in you know, like 500 years after that particular horse has been stolen. You know, we're living in a globalized world and the current president, you know, uh, trying to stop that just, <laughs> you know, who are you kidding? Fair enough. And then so our choices for the future is whether we follow... Uh, a wizardly or a prophetesque kind of of path, or or maybe some hybrid. Is it, what what is the choice yeah. that we have in front of us? Oh, you know, we can decide. I mean, there's nothing because these are all human arrangements. There's nothing that says that you couldn't combine parts of the wizards and the prophets. I mean, it's not like we're dealing with laws of physics. You know, I can certainly invent scenarios of more, you know, greater or lesser plausibility that would combine them. But you know, people seem to typically fall onto one end or another of this particular spectrum, but it could be different. And, you know, I guess a little bit in the back of my mind, I hoped that reading it all in sort of black and white in my book would inspire the reader to think about uh, ways of escaping that particular paradigm. How are you feeling, uh, you personally, yourself, Charles C. Mann, are you feeling more wizardly or, or more like a prophet these days? Oh, boy. I guess in a certain way I'm feeling both because you're seeing in the current crisis with the coronavirus, the necessity for both science and community in the sense that uh, we really need to come up with some scientific advances and test them properly and rapidly disseminate them. And that's going to be very difficult to do without some kinds of centralized controls. But then while we're doing that, we also need to have functioning communities in which we all look out for each other. So here's a case in which both are needed. And you, and you see people sort of splitting into this kind of funny thing where people are focusing either on the community measures or saying there's going to be, you know, treatments and vaccines. And so we don't have to worry. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. And uh, it appears that, you know, the wizard and the prophet as a uh, set of paradigms for understanding these decisions goes far beyond just environmental ones. It just seems like maybe this is much broader than that. I think so. I mean, these are, you know, in, you can find echoes of this, uh, you know, Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson's famous arguments about whether the, the like real heart of the country is located in the city or the country, right? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I could see And that. Locke versus, and, and Voltaire uh, versus Rousseau. You know, these these are modern versions of um, philosophical disputes that have been going on for centuries. Yeah, I, I love that. I think this is such a good way to, to teach these concepts and to play with them. And I think this is, if I was trying to bring someone into like the environmental space, I think this is a very useful rubric and also a heuristic for testing how people, like what their inbuilt assumptions and values are. I think it's a, a great mm -hmm. tool for doing so. Kudos for that. Well, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, Charles, if someone wanted to keep up with your work, obviously they should read um, your your masterpiece, your trilogy, <laughs> your pretentious trilogy. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that bad. That wasn't that wasn't the most grandiose thing I've ever heard on this show. I probably said worse myself, so don't be too hard on yourself. <laughs> but uh, okay, <laughs> how uh, should someone keep up with your work? Oh, I don't know. Um, I'm working on another book, and when it comes out, you can buy it. <laughs> buy it <laughs> in the it. hardcover. People really, really help this guy out. Yeah, exactly. And apparently now what they want you to do is buy it all the first week so that it you know rockets up the uh, the, the bestseller list. They're, I was told by my publisher recently that uh, I hadn't really thought about it, but um, pre-orders on Amazon, he said, are gold. <laughs> oh, is that right? That's, that's good to know. Are you able to, to tell us, uh, tease us a little bit with what it might be about? Yeah, it's a personal thing for me related to stuff I'd done before, but personal. When I wrote 1491, it was originally supposed to have another final chapter about the North American West. That's where I grew up. It's an area that has, you know, obviously special personal meaning to me, and kind of about the deep history of the West. And when I outlined it, the outline for the chapter was longer than all the other chapters. 
you know, with the unwritten. And I, I tried to cut it down and it just didn't work. So I ended up cutting it out completely and papering together an end. If you look very carefully at the end of 1491, you'll see that it's, uh, you can still see the sutures and the scars where I sort of lashed together an end. And uh, this has been sticking in my mind. And I finally thought, well, I'll see what I got. And uh, last year, I wrote out a, a lengthy outline and I realized, wait, this actually is a, a book of its own. And it's about trying to consider the West in terms of its future as part of its ancient history. You know, the, what we know about the West, I mean, without going into too much prediction, is that well, it's going to be hotter and drier than it is today. We know that it, it's going to be you know, roughly 40% Hispanic and, you know, something like 8% Asian. And we know that uh, water issues are going to be really, really important. And we also know, um, this is probably the most quote-unquote controversial, the, the, the 274 federally recognized tribes in the West are going to gain more and more sovereignty. I mean, that's the trajectory they've been on since the 1960s. And so in 2050 or something like that, there will be essentially almost 300 small nations in the West in this time of environmental convulsion and tremendous mixing. So the conventional history of the West, which involves you know the frontier and people coming in from the East and you know nature being tamed and the West essentially disappearing, just doesn't seem very relevant to that. And so it's a history of the, what the West might be in the future. I love it. I want you back on the show to talk about it. We can even time it so it helps with uh, your publisher. Oh, geez. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm from Arizona and I have a lot of affection for the Southwest, spent so much time out there. I am very interested in this. I, I can't wait. When, it, when uh, might this come out? Well, I'm hoping to, uh, it would be next year sometime, probably a year and a half from now. Yeah. Book publishing with their long lead times. Well, this is actually good, though, because uh, if you think about it, what it means is it forces you to try and imagine something and to write something that will have some value you know, beyond the immediate. That's a good point. Yeah, that makes me feel better about it. And I'm hoping you know, that I wrote 1491. It was published in 2005, and uh, I was kind of tickled to hear that you read it last year and it had some value to you. I thought, oh, wow, you know, it's sticking around a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that thing holds up as far as I can tell. It's great. And then you're also on Twitter see that yeah it's uh what, what is your handle there charles c man at charles c man yeah all of the, these links will be in the show notes if you'd like to buy charles's books or follow him on twitter is there a website too it's actually down and then <laughs> while i was down i was taking of you know, tinkering around around with it my expiration uh, my uh, <laughs> website expired for, I don't know, an hour and the domain snatcher got it up. So I have to deal with that, it, which I will do as soon as I finish this chunk of the book. Okay. Uh, yeah. Good. <laughs> good luck. I'll keep my eyes peeled. This is, this is what happens when, uh, when you are just a person and you're, and you're fighting algorithms. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. There's a the man versus technology. There you go. Yeah. Very unsuccessfully versus technology. Yeah. 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 You lost. You got skynetted. Oops. <laughs> well, uh, thanks for being here, Charles. That was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. And uh, thanks for stimulating my mind. And also the the Patreon book group is is grateful for giving us such fruitful terrain for which to march over. So thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. That's what I wrote the book in the hopes it would do. And so thank you very much for um, the kind words. My pleasure. And if you would like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you listen to shows. And thank you so much for listening. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and or Stitcher. It really helps us a lot to get this content to a wider audience. If you think what we're doing is useful, interesting, fun, hopefully all three, we'd certainly appreciate your rating and review. You can keep up with Nori at Nori.com, where there is a newsletter. That's Nori.com slash subscribe. There's podcast. There's a whole bunch else. Or you can send us an email at podcast at Nori.com. We are also now on Patreon at patreon.com slash Nori podcasts if you'd like more content, engagement, and community. And thank you so much for your support.